Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. Turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Glad we at least have three. On my right, your left here this evening, or things would be really disproportionate. But um, that sort of balancing things out a little bit for us. I suppose uh, with the hour change, everyone feels a little bit more sleepy by the evening hours. And uh, anyway, we do come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Really interesting passage for us as we continue to progress through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and this will lead us very appropriately into our time tonight later in praying for the lost in our community, in our churches, uh, evangelistic efforts, both in, uh, in regular evangelistic ministry efforts and um, those significant events that we hold uh, throughout the year and that we were sort of brainstorming about in our last elders meeting things that we can develop uh, both on a regular basis and um, and a periodic basis throughout the throughout the year and uh, we'll we'll look forward to that time together and but in the meantime turn to first Corinthians chapter 10 and follow along with me as we read through verses one to five Paul says for I do not want you to be unaware brethren that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness." Obviously, we began to see this last time and how this relates to Paul's conversation about a biblical practice of Christian liberty and how we use those liberties for the building up of the body of the Christ and for our testimonies in a lost world. And, and the Corinthians were given an extraordinary privilege and a tremendous blessing as a church both in the, the geographic sense, the strategic location that they were in in the ancient Roman Empire, but also economically even. They had an economy that was, that was unique. It provided an opportunity for tremendous wealth, and they were a sizable church. But unfortunately, all of that was hitched to an engine that was undisciplined. It was like they were a car hitched to an engine that ran on no tracks, just sort of whenever where they willed and whatever the time and the culture told them to go, they would just follow along with whatever the values of their society told them they ought to be doing. And they were severely undisciplined, and that was met with God's displeasure, just like Israel was a nation that was associated with extraordinary privilege and extraordinary blessing from God, but because they were so undisciplined, God disciplined them. He was displeased with them. 
But even though Israel's testimony should have acted like a warning beacon to them, that is the Corinthians, they were characterized by laziness, doctrinal ignorance, gross immorality, arrogance, they were puffed up, factionalism, they were critical, they were self-centered, they were selfish, they were entertainment and personality driven, they were overindulgent. Um, and so the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that you would, that you would learn... Paul's desire is that the Corinthians would learn at Israel's expense. Israel had unfortunately become, rather than a testimony of God's grace, a testimony of unfaithfulness. And so look to, look to Israel as an example of those who receive God's blessing but His displeasure. And it's incredible how directly applicable the lessons that should be learned here are for us, but being so much like the Corinthian church, we don't take heed to the warning to Israel, nor do we take heed to Paul's warning to the church in Corinth. And so we understand that Paul's tone is consistent with his deep shepherd's heart, his pastoral tone, but his pastoral tone is also in shock it's direct, it's confrontational, he's forceful, he's even displayed a righteous anger at the Corinthians for forsaking the power in the gospel of God that had brought them to salvation. And he rebukes them. It's all stitched together with a repeated reminder of Paul's own tremendous love for them. But even in his love, he will not tolerate this behavior. It's inexcusable. Like Israel, they had assumed the proximity to the blessings of God secured them in eternity. They assumed that the principle of blessing necessarily meant God's pleasure. But even in Israel's blessing, there was judgment. The Corinthians, in their puffed-up arrogance, divorced themselves from what they should have known about the character of God revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures. They were bad students of history. Arrogance always makes you a bad student of history, and the Corinthians were not the exception to the rule. Mark Twain writes, "...it is not worthwhile to try to keep history from repeating itself, for man's character will always make the preventing of the repetitions impossible. What is that character? Character of arrogance. Pride. Self-deception. The 18th century English historian Edward Gibbon said this, History is indeed little more than the register of crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. But what experiences in history teach us is this, that peoples and governments have never learned anything from history. Well, Paul, Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to be ignorant of Israel's own history and fail to apply them. He wants them to learn something from Israel's history. And so in verses 1 to 5, Paul gives us five examples of blessing that Israel had, and yet they still didn't finish well as a matter of discipline. They were blessed by God, but they were lethargic in their doctrine, and that lead that led them to deviation from righteousness. 
And first we saw that God led Israel. God led Israel. Of course, pointing back to the Exodus when God led them out of the land of Egypt, we we read in verse 1, I want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And um, so God leads them out of the land of Egypt. And that was the first part of verse 1 there. When Paul's talking about being under the cloud, that's what he's referring to. He's talking about the time when God led them by a cloud by day and by a pillar of fire by night out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of Goshen. And secondly, we saw that, that God rescued Israel. According to his perfect will and according to his perfect plan, God led Israel through the wilderness, the wilderness by a cloud so that Pharaoh thought that they had gone completely mad. They have no idea where they're going. And to the north of the Red Sea would have been the king's highway. That would have been the normal expected course that they would have traveled. It was probably the road that, that Moses would have taken in his return to Egypt. But God, in His perfect plan, diverted Israel from the road. They wandered through the desert, and God would once again harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh, who assumed that God must have left them, it's the only rational explanation for this. And he pursued the Israelites, and God would rescue them as they crossed through the Red Sea and annihilate the Egyptians, the Egyptian army, and Pharaoh. And then the third example comes in verse 2. God showed mercy to Israel. Verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. That sounds a little funny, doesn't it? What in the world is that talking about? (laughs) They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Well, this doesn't mean that Moses and the Israelites were not Jewish, they were actually Baptists. Moses Baptist Church. You could probably get a .org or a .com domain for that. But uh, if we turn to Romans chapter 6, though, it might be helpful that the point of baptism really has nothing to do with water, which is immediately what we start thinking about when we think of baptism. Uh, Some will even argue that Paul in verse 2 is referencing baptism by water, whether by immersion or by sprinkling. Some say, well, it was uh, in the Red Sea that they were baptized. Well, what would that mean if they were baptized in the Red Sea? Oh, the Egyptians were permanently baptized into the Red Sea. But others say, well, no, 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 it was the cloud, the cloud. When it was replaced by fire in the day, you know, the, the cloud, you know, clouds uh, obviously are contained of water particles, and the, it would sort of, it was just rain on the uh, on the Israelites at the end of the day, and so they were they were baptized by sprinkling. That's not at all what Paul is talking about. So if you've turned to Romans chapter six, picking up in verse three, we referenced Romans chapter six this morning, but in verse three, Paul says, "Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore." We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that 
we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. In verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, what's that talking about? I don't know if you caught on to it or not, but in verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about what it means to be baptized into Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ Jesus? It's not assumed too much here. Well, in verse 5, Paul substitutes a different word for baptism, but he's still talking about the same thing. Remember, baptism is a verb, or or, uh, to baptize is a verb. Baptizo is the verb. It means to immerse, that's all. And so it's an illustration. We have a verbal illustration. In verse 5, he substitutes, instead of using the word baptism, a different word. What's the word? United. That's right. United. That's the idea. The significance of baptism is that we are united with Christ. We are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. That's again, verse 11. So consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you can even argue that the preposition there, in, is also the same thing that we are united with Christ. We are baptized in Christ. We're all saying the same thing. United with Christ. Baptized in Christ. We're identified with Christ. And so water baptism is just an illustration of that. It illustrates the spiritual union that we have with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so it's the same kind of spiritual identification that Paul's getting at uh, the people of Israel had with Moses. So I think there's there's actually a covenantal relationship in baptism that Paul's getting at. That's the history lesson that Paul wants us to think about. For the Christian, when we are saved, we are spiritually baptized into Christ. And what that means is that we become participants in the new covenant. The new covenant is applied to us. When we are baptized, we enter into the new covenant. Baptized spiritually, we are entered into the new covenant. That's what we proclaim when we take the second ordinance of the church, the body and the blood. There is a new covenant in my blood. Baptism is the first ordinance that that illustrates the united nature that we have in Christ. But, But in the Lord's Supper, in communion, we are expressing the fellowship that we have in Christ, the new covenant in Christ's blood. And baptism illustrates a spiritual baptism in which we've participated in that new covenant. So for Old Testament Israel, it would have been the experience at Mount Sinai that they entered into the Old Testament covenant with Moses. That was a time of tremendous blessing. They were to receive the word of God. But this is also where Israel's arrogance, walking away from that event, would have been particularly dumbfounding. How could that be? 
Because here you have yet another example of God's blessing and their fickleness. I mean, it is one of the most memorable events of the narrative event of Mount Sinai that we have relates to Israel's fickleness. Many times, God simply preserved and blessed Israel because of the promise that He made to their forefather Abraham and for no other reason. Or because one of His prophets spoke out and interceded on their behalf. And on Mount Sinai, when they were baptized into Moses, became participants in the Old Testament covenant, the Mosaic covenant, as it's been called. You have both happening in Exodus chapter 32 and Deuteronomy chapter 9, where we see this being played out. Where a prophet speaks and intercedes on their behalf. And God also promises to preserve and to bless Israel because of His promises to their forefathers. That's all. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul reminds his readers of Israel's wilderness wandering experience and all their fickle unfaithfulness. And if you... If you were to turn to Exodus chapter 32, actually for the sake of time, I don't think we will. Exodus chapter 32, Israel is in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai where they fall into idolatry. They worship the golden calf that Aaron had crafted and said, Behold, the God who brought you out of bondage in Egypt out of the house of slavery. Now, Aaron wasn't wasn't building a new God denying the true God that had brought them out of the land of Egypt. He he says, this is the God, as in, let this be what you worship. This is his representation. It was inappropriate, completely inappropriate. They wanted to worship God the way they wanted to. They wanted to worship him the way the other nations worship God. They wanted to worship God in the way that they were familiar with, the way the Egyptians worshiped their pantheistic deities. And so we read in Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 7, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation." Obviously, God didn't do that. Why didn't He do that? Because Israel repented? No. We read in verse 11, Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. 
turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself. Referring to Genesis chapter 12 and 15, when God actuated the covenant that he made with Abraham. When he, the lampstand, walked between the two pieces of cut bull. And in normal circumstances, when a covenant would be made, the two people in the covenant would walk through that together, hand in hand, representing uh, uh, to illustrate that so may happen to me if I violate this covenant, that I should be ripped in half. God makes that covenant with Abraham. This eternal promise to Abraham, this unconditional promise to Abraham, and walks through by himself. Abraham observes the lamp going through. And so Moses reminds God of that. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And of course, God withheld His judgment. He chose to show mercy to Israel because of His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So again, by mere principle of their biological proximity to Abraham... Isaac in Israel, God withheld his wrath. But they would be foolish to presume that blessing amounted to pleasure, and so would the Corinthians. And if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, actually, I'm still in Romans chapter 6, but if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, wherever you are, you'll see our fourth and fifth examples of Israel's blessing in verses 3 and 4. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they're drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. God provided, and God satisfied. Obviously, these go much hand in hand together, but Obviously, the first points to God's gracious provision in Exodus chapter 16, when God graciously responds to the Israelites' grumbling with manna. And even went beyond their need and provided them with quail. And the second refers to God's miraculous provision for water in Exodus chapter 17. Satisfying their thirst. Paul's statement in verse 5 is not supposed to, or rather in verse 4, is not supposed to cause some kind of great uh, controversy about allegorical hermeneutics and so forth. When Paul says, 
they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. First of all, Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, which translated means anointed, or can also mean Savior. And so there is in that sense where the rock was chosen by God to be the Savior of his people from their physical thirst. And so Paul could just be speaking of Christos in that general sense, but I'll say this, it's extremely unlikely in my view, because nowhere else in the New Testament do we have an example of that kind of a thing. Christos is a term that was used expressly and exclusively for the Christos, the the Messiah of ancient Israel, the expected anointed one of Israel, their Redeemer, their Savior. And so there is some flexibility there, but it's highly unlikely. We don't really have good justification to assume that that's what Paul is saying. Rock is also used as a synonym for God. And so really what Paul is simply doing is emphasizing that it was Israel's Messiah, the Christ, who was the one providing for them even during their wilderness wanderings. That is reinforced, actually, by Paul subscribing to this um, rabbinical legend. Rabbinical legend was that uh, this rock that Moses struck followed them throughout all their uh, wilderness wanderings. It miraculously followed them as they traveled as a nation. And so Paul says, yes, yes, that one was Christ, the one who was actually following the people of Israel. Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah was with them. He was right there. Here were their Jews, and the Messiah is with them. He's present. He's providing for them. He was sustaining them. He was satisfying their thirst. And yet, that didn't equal God's pleasure any more than Judas' proximity to Christ did. Simply because he was there didn't mean every person in the nation of Israel individually had the pleasure of God. Some did. Certainly didn't mean, certainly didn't mean that simply because Christ was there and traveled with them and provided for them in the wilderness, whether they realized it or not, that they had God's pleasure. And though they were blessed by Christ, they would be above God's judgment because they were not. And Israel should have understood that. Just because you are a recipient of God's blessing doesn't mean that He's pleased with you. In Genesis chapter 18, we read that the Lord had visited Abraham. And he says in verse 20, in fact, you can turn to, you can turn to this one. So what's happening, Israel, in their wilderness wanderings, should have understood that proximity to the Messiah... For them, they're baptized into Moses. And Moses, of course, looks forward to Christ. 
But they also assume that because they're receiving God's blessing, they also have His pleasure, but they should have understood that the two don't necessarily go hand in hand together. And so in Genesis chapter 18, we read that the Lord had visited Abraham, and He says in verse 20, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. So, first of all, Israel's blessings are given as an example that should act like a warning beacon to us. In verses 1 to 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Israel is in the wilderness after having been set free from bondage in Egypt while they're on their way to the promised land in ancient Palestine. And it's interesting to pay attention to how many alls there are, and yet they are all killed. They were struck down and prevented from entering the promised land, except two, obviously. We said that last time. That is uh, Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else had to die off. And then we have this example of the Jewish nation that Paul begins in verse 1 as an explanation for why he exercises discipline, self-control. But in Genesis chapter 18, the Israelites would have been so familiar with this, the sin and the iniquity of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so in verse 21, God says, I will go down and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Look at the exchange that follows, starting in verse 23. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now, behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it, even if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will do it on account of 40. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. And then he said, Well, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. What's the point? Well, it's pretty obvious for our purposes God repeatedly shows that he is willing to show mercy to two entire cities because of a few who dwell there 
that are righteous. But obviously, the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah could never conclude that God showed mercy because they were in His favor. And you translate that to the Corinthian church, and you translate that even to the American church. I can't help but wonder how many churches there are that presume because of God's apparent blessing that they also have His favor. And In fact, it's pretty easy to see in our context how that could happen. We live in a country of incredible wealth and prosperity. We live in a country of religious freedom. But we also realize that those who are truly saved are relatively few. And yet, nevertheless, for their sake, it may very very well be that God is showing mercy, patience, long-suffering, withholding His inevitable judgment for the rebelliousness of our nation, calling good evil and evil good. And that can falsely lead many to conclude that the state of their blessing and prosperity is His direct pleasure. When that is not the case, what they don't realize is that it's the same blessing that God gives to the faithful in order that they can continue to proclaim His message with prosperity that allows for the wicked to appoint for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, tickling their ears. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, that He causes the sun to rise on the evil, and He causes the rain to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so Paul's intention is that we and the Corinthians would not run the race that is set before us with a spirit of apathy and complacency, but with fervent faithfulness being encouraged by the bad example of the Israelites. Chapter 9, Paul holds himself as a good example of one who is disciplined and runs the race well according to the rules, practicing the right use of his Christian liberties. And in chapter 10, he rebukes the Corinthians for being like the Israelites, holding them out as an example of lethargic, fickle, people who did not run the race well, who broke the rules. All these blessings they had, all these blessings from God, but all of them overshadowed by the devastating, surprising blow in verse 5. This is unexpected. God was not well pleased with them. For they were laid low in the wilderness. In fact, even just because God loves, there were many in Israel who were not the true Israel, who were in truth unbelievers. But even just because God loves, we'd be foolish to think that He doesn't also chasten. And the Corinthians would also have been foolish not to think that God would chasten them even though he loved them as a true church, weak church as it was. And even though no one who had been truly regenerated by God can ever lose their spiritual life, we saw last time how Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that it is for this reason, because of God's chastening, because of the Corinthians' rebelliousness, because of their arrogance, because of their persistent sinfulness, that some of them were sick and even asleep. Of course, speaking allegorically for death. And that was a mercy Discipline always is. 
Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that believers are sealed for the day of redemption. And Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And the reason is the same reason for which he saved us, not because of who we were, but for the sake of his own glory. And likewise, he promises to keep us, not because of who we are, but for his own glory. And his eternal security rests securely on his love for those whom he has purchased with his own blood. But the Christian should be extremely aware of the fact that that doesn't mean that we can escape his discipline or that we can't be disqualified from the privilege of being the king's herald, the king's ambassador, fulfilling the purpose for which he has left us here on earth. To proclaim Christ, disqualified from being an effective witness. And that's just what happened to Israel, isn't it? It is this regard in which the church replaces Israel. The light of the gospel was removed from them and given to the church. God's promises to Israel are not redistributed to the church, and the church has not become Israel. However, they lost the opportunity to be an effective witness to the world. The prize was taken from them. But the Corinthians were in danger of losing their testimonies if they didn't repent. They were at risk for losing the prize. And that's terribly sad, and it's devastating when that happens to any Christian, on an individual basis or in a corporate sense. And even worse, it's even worse when someone is deceived, like many of the Israelites were, simply because they were baptized into God's covenant with Moses in a ritual sense, that they were also baptized into that covenant in a spiritual sense. Many believe that merely because of their familiarity with Christ or association with Christ or association with His church, they are beneficiaries of the new covenant. But we know that's not true. Familiarity, close proximity, never saved anyone. Salvation is by baptism into Christ. Being saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. Being buried with Him in the likeness of His death and raised with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. And as we go into our time in prayer tonight, I want to emphasize that that particular, well, those particular individuals who, in a sense, know God. They know what the Scriptures have to say about Him. They know He's the Creator. They know that Christ has died for the ungodly. But much like what we were talking about this morning, they are those who put on a facade of behavioralism. Rather than having a godliness 
and a righteousness that flows from a godly heart. Righteousness from within, a pure heart. They just put on that facade and knowing that they don't ultimately love God. And maybe it's their own arrogance that prevents them from turning to Him. Maybe it's their love for the world, or their love for their reputation, or whatever else it might be. So I'll go ahead and pray for that. And then um, what we're going to do after I'm finished praying, you can break into small groups. I would encourage you to mix around a little bit. Try not to pray. We have a small group tonight, but try not to pray with the same people that you prayed with the first time around. And so I'll pray first, and then you can pray. We have no other order. And then Greg will come and he'll just pray his heart in relation to evangelism as well in our local outreach ministries here. And then we'll do the same. We'll break out into small groups again, continue praying for about five minutes, and then Tom will come up and we'll do that again. And then Robert will come just to close us in our time tonight in prayer. Okay, so that'll take us for about the next half hour. Let's, let's pray. Father, we know that there are so many who are self-deceived. Those whom we were reminded of this morning in Matthew chapter 7, those who say, Lord, Lord, they are adamant that they have your gift of salvation. Adamant that they have regeneration. And that is only ironic because they don't live like they have regeneration. And therefore should not have such confidence to be able to profess, Lord, Lord. When, as you said, they do not do what you say. They practice lawlessness. And you don't know them. They, like many of the Israelites, undoubtedly like many in the Corinthian church and many in every church ever since, no doubt many in our church, believe that because of their affiliation of, with so many things that are good and righteous, that are honorable in your sight, their association with this church, maybe even their membership in our church. Maybe because they, they know your name and they can say the right verses about the gospel, but having never been really redeemed, they are deceived. Having never truly repented of their sin and believed in our Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their sin. And there are also many in the world, there are many in the context of the church around the world, many in the context, no doubt, of our church who are so deceived, but so many also in the world deceived in their own religious systems believing what the world has told them about God, what some philosophical system or man-made religion has told them about God. 
or whatever they have made up in their own hearts, creating, fabricating some kind of golden calf to worship. A God of their imagination. A God maybe that borrows from the God of Scripture, but divorced from those things that are true about you that they don't like. And so they follow that God and are also self-deceived. Following the light they have, perhaps. Yet ultimately still in rebellion, still lawless, still dead in their sins. Lord, we know so many in our immediate context here around our church. Many churches that sow seeds of an easy believism gospel, which is no gospel at all. Many churches that sow a legalistic gospel, which is no gospel at all. And so many false churches wielding such power and influence and binding and enslaving so many, giving them a false hope. And Lord, we do pray for many opportunities. to be able to give the true hope in the gospel, our only hope in the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom. Lord, we pray for those opportunities, but we also pray for our commitment to capitalize on those opportunities, to remain faithful and steadfast and disciplined to run and run well so that we would not be disqualified from the privilege that you have given us to bear your name. We pray for our flock's encouragement that they would eagerly and joyfully respond to the many new things that that we hope to and desire to do and to be able to continue to share your hope. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermoncast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. 
Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.